And uh, as uh, facetious as that sounds, that, of course, uh, betrays this, this motivation that is inside of every single human being, this, this self-survival instinct um, that's willing to let your buddy Joe take it with a grizzly bear, but you, you live. Sorry, Joe, but I got to preserve my life. Um, or its counterpart, and the counterpart of um, the kind of the flip side of the coin of, of that survival instinct or, or self-preservation is self-satisfaction. Uh, self-preservation is to, um, to stay away or avoid negative things, and self-satisfaction is the pursuit of positive things, really just the reverse of the two. And that's the heart that burns inside um, of humanity and, uh, and is behind many of the behaviors and choices um, that run this world and why there's so much conflict and why there's so much evil in the world. And it, it's in here too. Yeah, it's in us. And it's, it's, it's not something that is, that is true to our, our created nature as, as it was designed by the Lord. And at different times in, in history, biblical history, you see um, men of God who show a, a, um, a desire, not a desire, but a love or a courage, a bravery that moves in the direction opposite of that survival instinct or that self-satisfaction instinct that where I am at the center of the world. And one of those, one of those people, and we studied about his life some years ago, probably, yeah, I think it was years ago now, King David when he was a boy and uh, one of my favorite figures. And you'll see how this plays in in just a moment. But, but there's a story of, of him as a boy taking care of his father's sheep. Uh, and he was probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And uh, while he was taking care of his father's sheep, David says in his own words, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, that, that, that his, the flock was attacked by a bear and then a lion. Now, I, I don't know what most young teenagers would do, but I, I'd venture to say most would say, I am out of here. I'm going to bounce from this place. I'm going to leave the sheep. And if, and if you did do that, chances are, given our culture today, um, and you ran up to your dad and said, Dad, all the sheep got eaten, but I'm alive. Say, well done, son. I'm just glad you're safe. <laughs> That's what we'd say. But David didn't do that. There was a, this, this, this desire, this courage to put himself in harm's way and, and to put himself in a dangerous place and to take on both the bear and the sheep at a young, oh, bear and the sheep, bear and the lion, um, because he was given this, this responsibility to care for something that his father had given to him. And so he says in his own words, when those, those, those two enemies came, I grabbed one by the scruff of the beard, the other by the, by the neck, and I killed them. That's moving opposite than um, that survival instinct. He put himself in the way. And I can't help but think that David, in his years as a, as a, as a shepherd, and uh, watching how a shepherd is supposed to take care of its sheep and put himself in, in a difficult and dangerous situation, didn't come to understand that Yahweh was his shepherd and saw how he showed up with him on the battlefield against Goliath and showed provision out in the, the wilderness when he was running from Saul, that at every turn he saw Yahweh as his protector and his provider, his shepherd. And he wrote about that in the most popular psalm, at least I think it's the most popular and one of the best, Psalm 23, where he wrote and says, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And he's not one who runs when the enemy comes. He's the one who sticks closer than a brother. He's the one who is before and behind and beside and under and over, so that even in the darkest of the valleys of the shadow of death, you know, where, where death is lurking and your enemies are crouching, just waiting to devour and tear you apart, 
He says, I know, even then, I know you're with me. And your rod and staff, they comfort me. Yahweh's staff is a big staff, you know, take out the enemy. And, uh, and he, he wrote about that. And that, that idea of Yahweh, or the God of the Old Testament, um, as being the shepherd of his people has, has been an en- enduring reality in the Old Testament. Um, the prophets talked about Yahweh as the shepherd of his people. He takes care of them, he protects them, he provides for them. And in one particular place, which I want to draw your attention to, which leads us into the text of John chapter 10, a prophet actually said that at one point, at some point, Yahweh himself is going to arrive on the scene and shepherd his people personally, powerfully, and in a, in a new way. Ezekiel chapter 34, we read this statement of the prophet. He says, and I, I italicize certain words because I wanted you to sense the emphasis. Uh, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, the prophet Ezekiel said, I, Yahweh, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down. That is, give them rest declares the Lord God, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will build up or bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. What an amazing heart of God who says, I will show up myself in a tender, loving, merciful way that makes broken people mended again and, and uh, takes the injured and binds up their wounds. That's such a, such a powerful and yet tender and merciful picture of Yahweh as shepherd. But he says, I I myself will at some point. Up to that, you know, point in the entire Old Testament, Yahweh did shepherd his people, but he did it through kind of mediators. And and all of those mediators, those people were were broken, sin-fallen men. They trusted in Yahweh, but they still were imperfect. Uh, Abraham was a shepherd and shepherded his little flock. And and Jacob shepherded his 12 sons. And Moses shepherded the people of Israel. But we know he wasn't perfect. And on through the ages, David shepherded the people of Israel as well. And yet he was was an adulterer and a liar and a broken person. Yahweh is saying in this passage, at some point, I'm going to show up myself. And I'm going to shepherd you myself. Now, with that in mind, you can understand, maybe with a little bit more power and significance, Jesus arrives on the scene. He's in Jerusalem, like the center of Jewish power. They already don't like him. They already have decided they're going to um, cast out anybody who believes he's the Messiah. In Jerusalem, he says these words, well-known, but hopefully now with a bit more punch. Is I am the good shepherd. It says it twice. Chapter 10, verse 11, 14. I am the good shepherd. In other words, Yahweh has arrived. And everything that we see him do, I mean, he, what is he doing? He's given sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. He's, he's giving a widow back her, her dead son. He's, just, he's showing himself to be exactly what is expressed in Ezekiel chapter 34. A God with a tender and merciful heart shepherd and he says I am the good shepherd well as you can imagine if you like I said if you know anything about the gospel of John he just doesn't leave it at I am the good shepherd Um, he fills out what that means for us in this chapter Um, and he does it first of all by giving us an illustration the illustration in verses 1 through 6 and then he elaborates on that illustration in verses 7 and following 
The illustration is, is of sheep and a, a gate or a pen and a shepherd, and I'm just going to read it for you here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, and again, this is just illustrative material that he's going to draw from in the verses that follow. I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold, and a sheepfold is like a pen or a corral, by the door or a gate, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the, uh, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, his entire flock, doesn't miss any of them, uh, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will, uh, they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. Uh, the figure of speech, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, is figure of speech or an illustration or a, or a parable, different ways of saying that. Um, used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. As I said, this is an illustration, and you know, fact matters, we don't grow up around sheep. Most of us don't. I noticed there's some down on, I thought is that 80 on the left a little bit, but we're, we're not, we don't grow up around shepherds and sheep, so to us, this seems maybe a little bit foreign, but actually, it's fairly straightforward, and the people who, Je who, was li who were listening to Jesus would have understood it pr pretty clearly, and that is, you know, just, you got to picture it with me, just, um, there's a pen you know, a, a corral, a place where sheep go at night to be protected. And um, given the details in the text, I think the idea is that multiple families would put their different flocks in this one pen and probably join together to pay a watchman or somebody to watch over the gate and watch over the sheep. So here's this pen at night with all of these sheep in it. And he says, if anybody tries to come in through any other entrance but the gate, well, then those people have malicious intent of, of poaching the sheep. Um, and that's, again... Same logic is, is, uh, is someone sneaking into your house at night, not through the front door, but through a window. Uh, if someone sneaks into your house through the window at night, um, there's a really high possibility that person is coming into your house to steal or do harm. Um, you come into my house at night through the window, it's not going to go good for somebody. You know what I mean? That's what he's saying. Normally, the person who owns the sheep is going to come to the normal place, namely the gate. And then that watchman is going to know, hey, that's the shepherd. And we'll welcome him, open the gate. And the shepherd would walk in, and he would start speaking to his sheep, and they would instantaneously know his voice. Now, in Western civilization, we tend to use sheepdogs, right, to corral sheep. But in the Middle East, both now and then, Shepherds, nomads, Bedouins, they still leave, lead their sheep by their voice. They hear it, and instinctively the sheep go, oh, I know that voice. That's the one who takes care of me and leads me to green pastures. And so they bend, and they follow him. And the idea is that within that pen of multiple flocks, some of the flocks would stay behind because the voice of the shepherd was not the right one. But the ones who recognized and knew the loving voice of the shepherd would just, you know, march on out and follow him in complete trust. That, 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 that's, that, that's kind of the picture of, of what's going on here. And, and um, we know what it's like to, to hear a voice that we recognize versus a foreign voice. And all of the feeling and trust that comes to the heart and to the forefront when you hear, like, say, your mom's voice when you're a child. It's just like, oh, mom's voice or dad's voice. That's kind of the, the, the feeling or the passion that's communicated with that identification of the voice. And as a side note, it's interesting, chapter 9 focused on sight and chapter, or nine, chapter 10 focuses on hearing. Interesting. The blind man is made to see in chapter 9, and here he's talking about those who hear in chapter 10. So that's the illustration, okay? Now, 
he's going to pick two pieces out of that illustration, and he's going to focus our attention on those two pieces, the door and the shepherd. Now, those of us who don't like to mix metaphors have a bit of a problem with the fact that Jesus is going to say, I am the door and I'm the she- a shepherd, door and shepherd. Um, you can pick either one, Jesus, but can't be both at the same time. That's how, kind of how we think about it. And why when we read it, we're like, wait a second, that doesn't work. He's door and shepherd, that doesn't work. Well, Jesus is Jesus. He's a creator of the world. He can mix his metaphors all he wants. He can be both door and he can be shepherd. And he uses these things to just tell us truth about himself so that we'll trust him, so that we'll find strength in him. The first one is, is the door. He talks about the door. It says two times. And this is one of the other I am statements. We're hitting two at once. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. Again, I'm that that entry and exit point of the sheep's pen. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He contrasts his purpose with the purpose of other leaders. That is, his purpose is to come and give life to his sheep. That is, to come and give life to his people. Other leaders, he says, by contrast, are interested in exploitation of the people and also in destroying the people. How many examples have we seen in our history books just in the last 120 years of of leaders who have promised utopia only to lead people into holocaust? I don't have to name them. You probably can. I remember, I will name one, because I remember it burned into my my memory um, because I was just a boy, 11 years old, when um, Jim Jones thing came out. Do you remember that? And I just remember saying, how could this happen? And they actually showed on the news, the bodies of children and men and women who drank the Kool-Aid, all because they trusted the message of a leader. Now, not everything is that tragic. Sometimes it's more subtle. But Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not that kind of leader. I've come to give you true life. And it's found in the door. Interesting, door. You know, the door of your house it's both an exit and it's an entrance. At night, you go into your house where it's a place of refuge. You sleep. You lock your doors. It's a place of protection. That's on the inside. And then in the morning, you go unlock your door and you go out and you get in the car. And you go out and do work and you experience prosperity. You bring home money. Then you come back in, go in your house, lock your door, and there you live in protection. The same is true of the sheep and the the door is trying to communicate means where Jesus is saying listen I am the door through which you exit and enter you enter for protection you exit for provision I mean that's actually what he says he says if anyone enters by me he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture they go in at night for protection. They go out in the daytime for provision. In for protection, out for provision. In for security, out for satisfaction. He's saying, that's what you find in me. That Jesus is declaring of himself that I am the exclusive means, and he's speaking of present and eternal categories, that, you, that, that I am 
um, the exclusive means to eternal protection, security, eternal provision, and, and satisfaction. That's what he's saying of himself. You pause, you realize that every one of us long for these two things. Security and satisfaction. Sense like you're not going to lose what you have. Or just to simply be satisfied by the provision of the world around us. And most of the world kind of tries to, um, how shall I say this? Draw out, suck out from the world things that will enable them to feel a sense of security and satisfaction about life. I mean, our, our, we're, we're, even in this room, people are looking to their spouse for security and satisfaction, their husband or their wife. They're looking for their 401k to give them a sense of security, uh, 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 an increased amount in your bank account so you can feel a sense of security. Um, you name it. We draw our sense of satisfaction and our sense of security from the world in which we live. That's the world's way. It has no other way of securing itself. But all of that stuff is both temporary and terminal and at the end of the day can't truly provide security or satisfaction for the human soul as it was made by God. It's found in one place. And Jesus is saying, I am that. I'm not just that for your eternal future. I am that for you now. Like the disciple is to look to Jesus as the door. You are my means to continuing satisfaction and my continuing protection. I find refuge in you. You are my stronghold. You are my deliverer. You are that which I taste and know that you are good and pleasant and pleasurable. That's, that's Jesus is saying that about, about himself. And that's where the disciples to find his, his source is in the door. Well, that's a rather, the door is a rather uh, impersonal metaphor, right? Door doesn't have a mind, doesn't have a heart, doesn't have lips to speak. It transitions to something that's far more personal, which is where we come to the good shepherd. Remember I said there's two, he's going to point at two, the door and the good shepherd. The first one is the means of both provision and also protection. The second one has to do with understanding the heart of who he is and why he's good. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, does, does, uh, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. That's the backpacker, by the way, who runs faster than the slowest guy, you know. Uh, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am, he says for the second time, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge I have received from my Father. Right here, it just declares for us why he's good. Like why he's good and therefore should be trusted. One of the things that makes him trustable and makes him good is the fact, the very first thing he, he lays out here is that 
that he's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't run away when the lion or the bear comes. That is, he's, you see in this, 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 uh, this shepherd the fact that he sacrificially loves the sheep. He actually cares for the sheep. Like David, he's willing to go toe-to-toe to the lion and the bear and take them down in order to save the sheep. Like David was just kind of a precursor, a shadow of who Jesus would become because he came to deliver us from our ultimate enemies, which oftentimes we don't think that the ultimate enemy is, is what the Bible says it is. We think it's cancer or divorce or bad education or bad politics. And... Uh, but the three enemies that, that, that we could not deal with, that we cannot put down, we cannot overcome. I like to think of them as the three Ds. That is the devil, our depravity, and the last one, um, devil, depravity. Nice, I get three Ds and I forget what the third D is. That's great, huh? I'll think of it in a second. Um, death, hello. Death, death. You know, it's amazing to think that we actually have overcome so many things. We've eradicated polio and eradicated uh, smallpox, and we're able to overcome certain kinds of cancer. But those three things we can't outdo. The sense of evil forces or the demonic in the Bible are, are, are described in such a way that we as mere humans are absolutely powerful, powerless against their deception and against their power. We have no way of defeating ourselves or, or, or extricating ourselves from their oppression. No one can, 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 can deliver us in terms of humans from that. Our own depravity, who, who can not dig out of our soul our own sense of sinfulness? None of us can. Or deliver us from the guilt of what this caused. Uh, or death, like who can actually save anybody from? Nobody can. Like the, but, but these are the three major fundamental never-to-be-delivered-out-of enemies. And yet Jesus came precisely to take those out on our behalf, to, to, to do what's What's loving, long-term, and eternal for his sheep? Take down the devil, rendered him powerless when he took our sins upon the cross, when he was crucified. Um, he took away our guilt, which we couldn't take away. He gave us a new heart through his Holy Spirit, which now at least longs to for and hopefully is increasingly becoming more Christ-like. Just, he, that's what he came to do. That's, 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 that's why he's, he's, he's good. I wish, I wish our hearts could really, really soak that in, that someone loves you that much. Knowing who I am, knowing who you are, that's saying a lot. Um, lays down his life for the sheep. It's rather ironic, actually. It's usually the sheep that are led to the slaughter. And here it's the shepherd that's led to the slaughter because he loves you one of greater value is sacrificed for the one of lesser value. The righteous one is sacrificed for the sake of the unrighteous one. There's another reason why he's good in here, and it comes through rather strong, and that is you read in here a strong sense of God's sovereign grace. That is that he is in control of his sheep, that he owns his sheep, he knows his sheep, and that does not include everybody. Does I am the good shepherd. This is kind of point two of this, is that I know my own ownership and belonging. They already, they belong to me. And my own, they know me. There's a reciprocal, personal, intimate knowledge between the shepherd and his true sheep. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, that again is intimate, personal knowledge of father and son he now shares with his people, his sheep. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. That's because he knows them, loves them intimately and personally. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's, that's you and me, by the way. Um, the original fold is the Jewish people. Not all of them accepted him. In fact, the majority of them rejected him. And Jesus would say the reason for that is they're not mine. And they don't know my voice. If they did know my voice, they'd come to me. See, that's the only way to explain that is sovereign grace. Some reject Jesus. Others are known by Jesus. He owns them. And he says other sheep, like you and me, this is Parkway, 21st century. Um, those sheep up there, 2,100 years in the future, those are my sheep too. And, and notice the sense of certainty. I must bring them. That's the charge that the Father has laid on the Son. You must bring those sheep in. You must not fail. And they will listen to my voice. doesn't say they might. I hope they'll listen to my voice. If I could do one thing with this right now, I'd want you to feel a sense of absolute certainty as to the fulfillment of Jesus' mission. Sometimes we think that Jesus is on the scene and... And we think of Christianity more broadly like this. It's like, man, I, I, hope, I hope somebody will listen to the message. Man, I, I, ho I hope maybe Jesus will perform his church and form his church and get all of his sheep in. And as if it's somehow contingent or it's just some possibility out there that may fail. And we need to understand, as, as people who, um, who trust in the sovereign shepherd, and read his word, he doesn't say it might happen. It says that he will build his church. He says, I must bring them in. He says, they will hear my voice. In other words, the completion of his plan is an absolute certainty so that at the end there will be one flock and one shepherd. Done. Our confidence going forward is not that we're going to make it happen. Our confidence moving forward is that he will make it happen. It's not a matter of, well, I hope the Lord is exalted in all the earth. The fact of the matter is God has declared over and over again, in all of it, I will be exalted in all the earth. No questions asked. That is the period at the end of the sentence. That is a certainty for this world. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Not a single knee will be left unbowed. That's the simple truth. He will complete what he started. There's a sense of sovereignty to this. Now, if that, that troubles you, let me just remind you what I reminded us of last three weeks ago. This whole idea that God owns his sheep, he knows who they are, he will gather them, which obviously means or implies that others will not be gathered, is not intended to diminish the importance of our personal responsibility to choose, which the Bible undergirds over and over and over again. Choose this day whom you will serve. And it is not meant to, meant to exclude those who are would-be followers. If a person wants to follow Jesus, they're part of his fold. Now, th this particular truth in Scripture, it, it's intended to do several things. It's intended to humble pride, for one. The context in which Jesus says these things, like, I know my own, and my own, they know me, is in the, in the, is in the context of, of Jewish self-righteousness and a sense of entitlement. I am a Jewish person. I'm entitled to Yahweh's grace. 
I know the Torah. That gives me some kind of special corner on the Yahweh market. And Jesus is saying, that is not true. That's how it's meant to be. It's just like, whoa, you're not going to be accepted, you're not going to be given life, or you're not going to be included in the fold by anything you do or any special birth order or the fact that you were Catholic when you were born. Period. It's... So it's meant to humble pride. It's meant to secure the believer to know that, oh, God, you, you have me. You'll never let me go. And even though I'm prone to wander, I know you've got me because, because you never lose a single sheep. That's how it's supposed to be. And then it's also intended to exalt the comprehensiveness of his grace. Uh, just to remind us that we're his because he miraculously opened our ears so that we could hear his voice. We don't hear his voice with our own ears. We hear his voice because he opened our ears. And here's the thing. And the, 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 why is that important? Because it means that, that with, at the end of the day, you know, when, when we cross that finish line, yeah, I didn't do this for service, but when we cross the finish line, there's resurrection and there is new creation and all of the bad is gone and all of the good comes in all of its fullness, we will say, or think, or feel, or sing. It was because of your grace and your grace alone that I'm here. Nothing that I have done, even my ability to believe has come because you opened my eyes and opened my ears. So thank you. That's all we're going to be able to say. That's how it's supposed to function, sovereign grace. That's, and then finally he ends on a note of, of victory because simply to have a shepherd who's willing to die for you and, and a shepherd who you know, knows whose his sheep are Honestly, not enough. At the very end, he insists that he exercises absolute authority over death and, re- and life. Notice that authority happens, the word happens a couple times, and he says, because I laid down my uh, life, that, let me take it up again, this verse 18, no one takes it from me. <laughs> they must have thought he was just massively arrogant. Jesus in Jerusalem saying, no one can take my life. No one can take my, that's what he's saying. No one can take it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I choose to lay down my life. I have authority to lay it down. He has authority to die over his death, and I have authority to take it up again. He declares himself to be in authority over his own death and in authority over his own life in resurrection. In other words, he, he, he wasn't like this helpless victim that's like, oh, man, would somebody please save me? And as, as they nailed him to a cross. It's like that was an act of choice, an act of the will, an intentional and willing decision to say, I release myself to die. And he did that for you and he did that for me. It was, he wasn't that, like the passive victim. I mean, in one sense he was, but in another sense he's like, I have authority to lay down my life. And he was in complete authority over that crucifixion. And as such, he was also in complete authority over death in the sense that he took his life up again. That's the power of our shepherd. If he had the command and authority to to lay down his life and take up his life, then he has the command authority to lay down your life at the proper time and to raise it up again. And he will one day call out in power and he will do just that. Raise his sheep. All of these things brought together 
along with the door as the exclusive means of provision and satisfaction mean that Jesus is worth trusting in. And all of this truth is given to us to convince our minds and through the Spirit, our hearts, that he's worthy of trust no matter what the context, what the pain, or what the pleasure is. That's what the truth is supposed to do. Convince you that he's worthy of trust, even when things are dark. Because we're still in the valley of the shadow, the deepest shadows, where death still snarls at us. Now, I'll tell you what gets in the way for me of my heart trusting this, and I'm sure it's true for you too, is we often don't feel the need and the desperation that, that's really, really there. We're just, we kind of walk in a cloud sometimes as to what our needs really are. We don't sense it until God takes it away. And then you're like, wow, this is really hard. And kind of the flip side of that is we don't feel the sense of need because we're so dang self-sufficient. You know, we look around, most of the people in here either own their own home or they, they, they have a, an apartment that they rent. And if they have a roof over their, over their head, and I'm, I'm guessing you probably have food in the freezer and food in your fridge and food in the pantry. Most of, most of us. Most, most of us in this room are in good health. You, feel, you can walk on your own legs and you can feed yourself and so you feel a sense of, I, I can do this, you know? Um, probably have a bank account with at least some money in it that you can put gas in your car and make it to work. There's just a feeling of, you know, hey, I, I got this. I, get, I got this. And then you add on top of that the layers and layers of protection that we have that we invest in. Like, I mean, I got life insurance. I got car insurance. I got homeowner's insurance. You can buy insurance for your car or your iPhone. Like, just in case this layer of self-sufficiency breaks down, well, then you've got insurance to cover you if that doesn't work. And if that doesn't work, you can easily reach into your back pocket and pull out your credit card and pay for it and go to debt. So there's all of these layers of, of human ability to rely upon humans, which kind of leads us to the place of, well, I, you know, I got it covered, right? It's just, I, I'm kind of covered. I don't feel the sense of need and desperation for a good shepherd. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that God takes us through those seasons where he's like, nope, it's all going away. And I want you to see just how, how desperate and needy you are of me. I'm going to reduce you to a place of helplessness. Sometimes it's in your marriage. Sometimes it's in terms of your health. Or it's in terms of your finances and economics. A lot of people did that back in the 2008, 2009. Brought to the end and felt helpless. That wasn't a tragedy. That was probably a work of sanctification to show us just how weak we really are. I remember September last year. Um, I'll close with this personal story. I asked my wife if I could tell it. She writes it better in her own words. It's a little blog. Um, it's worthy of reading, and that's not because I'm a biased husband. It's just good. But last September 8th, my wife went in for surgery. And uh, it's the first surgery that we had major surgery in our little family unit. And uh, I know statistically that this particular surgery is done 99% of the time um, with a great outcome. Um, didn't work so well for my mom. So naturally, I was disposed to worry a little bit more as a husband. And I know personally of people in Solano County that I know by name who went in for a simpler surgery who ended up dead on the operating table. So, you know, to me, it's just not, it wasn't a, wasn't a small thing. So my wife and I show up. This is a, the 8th down at Kaiser. 
And uh, if you know my wife, if you don't know my wife, she's a pretty strong personality and fiercely independent. I love that about her most of the time. <laughs> um, that's, that's who she is. And, and uh, on, on September 8th, you know, we were there. It was about an hour before um, they were supposed to take her into the operating room. And, and we're, we're, she's in the bed. I'm there. And um, she just wanted to hold my hand. And I could tell that she was afraid for a number of reasons. She just wanted to hold my hand. She just wanted me to pray for her. And she just wanted to be comforted. Because in that moment, she felt like she was going into a helpless situation. I mean, I haven't been under general anesthetic yet, but the idea of going completely under and you being utterly at the mercy of a surgeon who's digging around inside of you is a haunting thought. And the idea of not being in control and being completely at the mercy of another was, was hard for my, my wife, and it was hard for me. Well, they came in and they said, well, you know, watching the clock tick, um, you know, waiting for the time just to come and get this thing over with. And the doctor came in and said, well, it's been delayed. <laughs> Never look at a clock when you're in the pre-operating room, right? Just forever and ever. And uh, she, uh, the time finder came, they, they wheeled her out. And uh, I looked at you, I remember. And um, they took her through the doors and, and I swallowed hard, you know? She felt helpless. And I felt helpless. I couldn't do anything but just sit in a room and either pray or go eat or drink or do something to take my mind off of it. But it's, it's, it's in those moments when you, you just realize how helpless we can really be and how much we long to have a sense of comfort and love and care around us in those moments such a humbling place to be. She's in a helpless place, I'm in a helpless place, and it's in those moments the Lord's like, do you really trust me? Do you trust that I'm good? If it goes well, or if it goes not well, but do you really trust me to provide for you in either of those possibilities? And it's an interesting thing. I, I look back now and I realize God showed himself to be faithful, not just in the outcome, but in the middle I'm in the waiting room, and once you know it, there's two ladies who come in and they're sisters. One of them is Linda Barngraff. She comes in, like, Linda. And she comes over and sits next to me, and we just start chatting. And she's like, oh, I had that surgery before. You know, just like, it was like this little beam of light. Like, like you know, like, 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 like Jesus said, I see, I'm a good shepherd. I'm sending you one of my people. Right? It's just, yeah, I don't know how we should, we shouldn't see it any other way. It's just God's just like bringing his people to show that I'm a good shepherd. I'm, I'm I'm with you. I'm going to send you these little gifts. It just provided this little little token of his goodness. And then on the other side, my wife came through the surgery fine, and, and then she came out. And this is kind of the humorous part of the story. Um, the only person in the room, because I hadn't been brought in yet, was this, this big African-American nurse. A guy. Big dude. My wife comes out of this thing, and the first person she sees is this strange African-American big nurse. And she looks up at him, and she says, can I hold your hand? <laughs> and he she says, you know, at any other time, I would have been furious. <laughs> but I mean, she's got this guy's hand, and she's just holding on to it. And in that moment, 
the Lord was shown himself to provide someone right there at the right time just for her to be there. You can't read it any other way. And, uh, and it's those kinds of times, it's just, and a lot of you have been through similar or worse things. And you know what? God's going to take us through worse things. Um, and in those moments, I'm just, George over there, you've been through worse. Um, just in those moments, recognizing, man, I have someone who's this good. Uh, he has power over my death, and so I don't have anything to fear in death anymore. And just to grab on and hold on and to trust in the shepherd who is good, who gave his life for you, and to know that he never leaves you nor forsakes you. Um, he sends his people to be with you in body, and his spirit is always with you, and just to know you're never alone, and to trust him. That's, that's a simple call. It's just to trust him. And brother or sister, one of the chief ways that we know that we're really trusting him is that we're actually following his voice. That we're hearing his word regarding anything in life, and we're endeavoring to follow it by faith and trusting that he is good in what he has done and good in what he prescribes and what he commands. And to follow him through the valley of the shadow of death. Body, church, brothers, sisters, trust in him with your situation. Hold him completely. Let your mind and heart be filled with this truth. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and goodness towards us. We even confess right now that we are frail, even in our faith. And so we, we pray, Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. And may Christ be fully formed in our hearts and in our souls. And may uh, we have confidence and dependence and um, surrender to the one who has proven himself to be a worthy shepherd in our lives. So we just surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Do your work. Continue to let this truth germinate in our hearts and minds and this church in Christ's name. Amen. Will you all please stand and sing with us?